You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing on this Monday. I'm Brian Curtis. Who scored the most goals in the World Cup? Adidas or Univision? Also, is stability back after a rough week in the markets? Some called it financial incest. The troubles at Portugal's second largest bank. But the mood appears to have cleared a little bit this morning. Markets stabilized on Friday and Asian cash and futures markets are modestly higher this morning. And you are reminded of problems we had previously in the Eurozone, and you look around where could other weak spots be, and I think that's a natural and, and, and a good reaction. I think over, after a couple of days, people will find out that, first of all, we don't have the same problems everywhere. This is probably an isolated case. As Christian Schultz from Barensburg Bank. We'll have more on the story in a minute. The big question, are we seeing a replay of the 2001 Eurozone crisis and is contagion likely or will it pass? At the moment, the answer seems to be no crisis. On another front, Janet Yellen and the Fed policymakers. My inflation outlook is uh, for, you know, one and a half to one and three quarters for a couple of years. And I don't expect to get up to two percent for for a few years. A few years. That's Chicago Fed President Charles Evans. One of his counterparts, though, differs. We are moving closer to our goals and objectives. Inflation is drifting back up towards our two percent objective. Unemployment rate continues to move down. For me, it's important that we adjust monetary policy appropriately. So those two Fed presidents uh, quite far apart. That was the Philly Fed president, Charles Plosser. Rates do matter. The HKMA has intervened two more times to defend the Hong Kong dollar. So we'll hit our guests with a bit of that. Our guests, by the way, this morning include Klaus Bader from Societe Generale on overall conditions and Europe. Avtar Sandhu from Philip Futures on gold and oil. And Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent on the World Cup. Uh, that would be making him a little bit nervous as he's listening now. No, we'll we'll talk to Barry about U.S. earnings, jobs, and interest rates coming up in just a minute. But as alluded to, the markets here in Asia are off to a fairly good start this morning. The Nikkei is up 35 points, 15,199. It seems gone are the worries about contagion in Europe because Seoul is higher and also Australia. All three markets up and running. They are higher for the morning. The dollar-yen is 101.36. The euro is at 1.360 U.S. Dollar seems to be stuck on that dollar thirty six, and the pound is thirteen Hong Kong dollars and twenty six cents. Okay, so we'll get to a little bit of news and then bring in our guests. The S&P 500 had its worst week last week since April. Financial stress in Europe and worries about record highs and feelings that uh, investors were being uh, complacent all powered the selling. J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo down at least 2.2% as debt in Portugal weighed in on bank shares. Yet the major indices were only down about 1% for the week. Let's hear a little debate now on rates. But inflation continues to be below our 2% target. It's been below 2% for quite a long time. And I think we need to get up to 2% in a sustainable fashion. And that's probably going to be one of the biggest issues. That's Charles Evans. As he said earlier, he thinks it'll be a couple of years before inflation hits 2%. If we get above 2%, then that'll be a sign that uh, things are, are doing better, I think. And, you know, frankly, it's not 
Um, it's not a catastrophe to overshoot inflation by some amount. 2% is our target. That doesn't mean we have to stay below 2%. We need to average 2%. So even a 2.4% inflation rate, if it's reasonably well controlled and the rest of the economy is doing okay and then policy is being adjusted in order to uh, keep that within the you know under 2.5% range, I, I think that, uh, that can work out. But Philly Fed President Charles Plosser thinks the day may be nigh. What the message really is, is that, look, the um, monetary policy is very accommodative. It has been for a long time. But at the same time, we are moving closer to our goals and objectives. Uh, Inflation is drifting back up towards our 2% objective. Unemployment rate continues to move down. I think it's important that we we acknowledge that we're getting closer to our objectives. And for me, it's important that we adjust monetary policy appropriately as we approach those objectives. So basically, he's saying there that the U.S. is actually quite close to the overall goals on inflation and employment. Regardless of where you define your objectives to be, we are closer now than we were. <laughs> we are closer than we were. We're closer now than we were a year ago, and and so in that sense, what I believe is this is that uh, we don't we should not be keeping interest rates at zero. Uh, until we reach all our objectives. That would, for me, that would be a very uncomfortable position for the Fed to be in. That was his answer to a question put to him. How can you say that uh, we're very close to our goals when one of your colleagues there is saying we're a long ways away from 2%, average 2% inflation? So that was his answer. So we'll talk to Barry in just a minute. But first, just to kind of um, draw in uh, Europe, is Europe imploding again? Again, the answer seems to be from strategists and economists to be no. We do have the tools in the Eurozone to deal with these things. I mean, this is not the first time we have a banking crisis, certainly. We've learned a lot about banking crisis. We have learned a lot about it. The ECB is <laughs> there. Liquidity is version. there. We've got the, the, we've got the AQR going on at the moment, the asset quality review of the ECB. The ECB should know lots about this bank and all other banks. So I think this is something that they can deal with. Something they can deal with. That's Christian Schultz again from Berenberg Bank. And we say good morning to our first guest, Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Barry, a good Monday morning to you and Sunday night. Uh, how are you? Oh, I'm very well. And, uh, Brian, uh, let me commend you for revealing just how divided the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee is, because hearing Plosser and Evans, I think, shows listeners that Janet Yellen is not dealing with the unified FOMC, and that's that's very useful information. I mean, never mind the World Cup. Um, you know, you've, she's got to be a referee at the Fed. <laughs> she does indeed, just like her predecessor, and uh, that's not an easy job. Okay, so we can talk about that in a minute, but I, I think the more uh, urgent story last week, which, as I mentioned uh, through some of those clips this morning, seems to be uh, passing a little bit, or at least the whatever uh, worries seem to be abating a little. Paint the picture for our audience here why uh, Banco Espirito Santo was important last week. Well, first of all, because uh, the Portuguese had exited their rescue plan, they were getting money from the International Monetary Fund, still are, but they rather prematurely said everything is back to normal. Well, the problems of one of their biggest Portuguese banks reveals that everything is not back to normal in Portugal, and that's, that's very useful information. I think why I agree with what your guest said about this not being a renewal of contagion, is that the European Central Bank and what is called the European uh, Monetary System 
has the firepower now to deal with problems. So if Banco Espiritu Santo cannot service its debt, and by the way, I think it can, but it missed a payment, its stock price fell, then the European authorities in Luxembourg and in Frankfurt are going to step in and bail them out. So I don't think it's a repeat, but it sent a shiver through the market. So they have the firepower, but the big question looms, is there more than this? You know, what happens if some other banks emerge uh, with problems paying off their coupon payments? Yeah, I think this is real, and this could happen. You know, Greece has been backsliding. But the problem there is, or maybe the good news is, the markets and governments in the European Union sort of expect Greece to ultimately default anyway. So I think Greece being so small can be handled. The fear is Italy, and to a lesser extent, Spain. Spain, too, has made a lot of progress, not as much as the Irish, probably more than the Portuguese. But yes, it could surface again. But the difference is that you've got the mechanisms to deal with the money on a quick dispersing basis to make sure that you don't have any bank failures in those European monetary system countries. Would you agree that it kind of um, indicates that we're not really out of the crisis yet? Uh, Just a reaction to one bank in Portugal pretty much going right around the world. Uh, It shows you that sentiment is still rather tentative and people don't feel as though we're getting close to being back to normal, like Charles Plosser was saying. Yeah, I think that's true. I think um, Charles Plosser, a person I knew when he was a professor, and he's a pretty uh, conservative guy. Um, You know, he can worry about inflation, but I think the evidence is on Evan's side. But to your question, Correct. We're not back to normal, whether it's North America. Well, I should say United States, because I think Canada's pretty good shape. But certainly Europe is not back to normal. They're not growing. And they have no prospects of immediate growth. So they're in worse shape than the Americans, but neither of those big entities in the global economy are back to normal. So let's talk for a moment about the U.S. economy, because that's what you specialize in looking at. Uh, Quite a few mixed signals. um, Not bad. Uh, The job growth, obviously, very good. Uh, Consumer confidence was slightly higher than what I expected. Uh, Yet you do have lots of concerns. Uh, Are we getting close in your view or, you know, is it pretty much still a few years away? I think that, um, you know, there are obviously question marks. I've been in the Middle West. If General Motors uh, can't meet all these payouts that are coming as a result of this addiction problem, and if they um, uh, are going to hemorrhage cash, which they don't have, if if General Motors gets in trouble again, then that would uh, send a big shiver through U.S. markets. Their stock price is down. They've got new management. But essentially, the auto industry at a much smaller size than it used to be is getting back to normal and is really racing forward. So autos are good. Consumer confidence is good. Retail sales are going to be good this week. And I think housing is improving. So I think the signs are very good here in the U.S. And what do you worry about, worry about the most? Well, I think, uh, you know, you could get, look, we've got a lot of lawyers, as all of your listeners know. And, you know, look, what happened to General Motors with the ignition switches and some deaths as a result of that is catastrophic. But my goodness, this is a weakened company that was in bankruptcy four years ago. They don't have cash. All those people who had General Motors stock, the old General Motors, they didn't get a penny. Well, the company cannot afford huge payouts that lawyers may 
succeed in getting. So this becomes, I think, a, um, a kind of joker in the deck. I don't think it's going to happen. But it's not something to completely dismiss. That's my biggest fear. And if we could spend a moment on the stock market, um, there it, it just seems to be impossible to get a correction if everybody is talking about it and wondering when it's going to come. You know, these kind of things seem to happen when too many people are bullish, not when everybody's nervous. It's true, Brian. It's absolutely true. You know, at the beginning of this past week, everybody, oh, the correction is here. And certainly with the Portuguese banks, oh, this is evidence. But look how the market sort of recovered on Friday. So maybe not. We probably do need a correction. But are we going to get it soon? I have no idea. The market is a forward-looking barometer. And it's telling us that the U.S. economy is getting better. And if you talk to the technicians, they say that P.E. ratios are not in the danger zone. So who knows? The earnings this week will be um, quite heavy on the financial services side. Uh, will they give us a very good picture of what's really happening? Yes, I think so. Because, uh, you know, just as um, the Europeans have problems, uh, we have had a very strong backlash officially against banks because of the housing crisis and all of the bad mortgages and the mortgage-backed securities. The banks are being hit with fines that are, you know, collectively far bigger than what um, uh, Paribas had to play just uh, to the Americans uh, last week or so. So these bank earnings are coming this week. They're going to get Citigroup. We're going to get J.P. Morgan Chase. We're going to get Bank of America. We had Wells Fargo last week. If these bank earnings are even on the bottom of expectations, that's good news because the banks have been paying out a lot of money and they're under pressure. So I think that the stock market will get a lot of clues from the bank earnings this week. Okay, let's bring in Klaus Bader, Chief Asia-Pacific Economist at Société Générale. Klaus, good morning. Good morning. What is most on your mind as, uh, as the uh, Chief Economist for SOCGEN uh, on a Monday morning? What are, you, what are you thinking about the most this week? Well, I'm probably think most about China um, right now, because it seems to me that that's the economy out of the really large economies where prospects are um, most uncertain. Um, and um, we, of course, had a, a pretty clear slowdown at the beginning of the year and at, at late last year. Um, and this week is an important week um, for, for China data. Um, they're still outstanding, the credit numbers. <clears throat> and I think the credit numbers in China are really, really important. Um, it's obvious from a fundamental perspective, um, if you have an economy where such a large part, between 45 and 50 percent of GDP, is investment, then of course you get a very credit-sensitive and interest rate and monetary policy-sensitive economy. Um, and uh, without a stabilization in credit growth, I don't think we're going to be able to engineer a stabilization in activity growth. Yes, we're, so, we're looking for FDI numbers today uh, uh, for the month of June, and I see the estimates are for uh, down something like 7%. Um, is that uh, a bad sign? No, that's, a, that's really a number that uh, I wouldn't take at all seriously um, in any way. No, what's much more important are the uh, financing numbers, the new loans uh, being extended, which um, are actually not scheduled on a specific day. Um, so um, we never quite, and you're never quite sure when they're going to come out um, and, money, and money supply numbers. Um, and those are expected to be pretty strong. Um, the, you, I mean, I think most people know that... Um, 
the Chinese authorities have um, implemented a whole series of selective easing steps. Um, They didn't go for an all-out reserve requirement cut. They didn't uh, cut interest rates, but they certainly have made incremental changes. Um, And those seem to be bearing fruit. Um, They they basically said, we're not in a position to uh, stimulate the global economy. It's going to have to be uh, you, the United States, uh, in talks last week. Well, yes, but uh, you know, if anybody is uh, stimulating their economy, it's the U.S. with a uh, you know, record low interest rates, which are basically zero. Um, they're doing plenty of stimulus um, in the U.S., and I think the same is true in Europe as well. Um, so that's not the issue, and that's why exactly I'm answering the, your initial question the way I am, which is I think uh, China – is the, is the key. Is the key at the moment because it's not quite clear. But we should get to just wrap it up. Um, we should get some pretty good indications about China. You know, if you look at uh, all the, um, well, the credit data that we have so far, um, for the first two months of the second quarter, um, if you look at, um, the, um, uh, PMI numbers, you look at industrial production, retail sales numbers, it's all looking actually a bit better. And so we're looking for a slight acceleration in GDP growth in China, um, from 7.4 to 7.5%. Um, and that's a significant change. You know, a couple of months ago, we were still thinking that we'd see a significant slowdown. We had 7.1%. So things are looking up there, but... Um, things are stabilizing, yeah. Well, let me, let me get Barry in for one more question before we let him go. Uh, and, and Barry, I just asked you about U.S.-China talks last week. Uh, the U.S. trotted out its old favorite um, admonishment <laughs> on, uh, you know, on, on exchange rate levels. Uh, uh, people really not talking too much about it out here. But anyway, uh, Jack Liu brought that up. Uh, it's seems like the two are sort of heading for quiet confrontation, uh, but I, I bet that those strategy talks last week didn't get much press back home. Well, you're absolutely right. In fact, I think, uh, well, of course it was in the Wall Street Journal, it was in the Financial Times, but uh, the AP wires read by the rest of the country, not at all. Television news, not at all. Uh, but I think they're very important talks. I'm curious to ask Klaus, what's happening with the RMB? I mean, are we going to get a kind of weakening in the months ahead or strengthening? I think we're going to get very, very little change, in yeah. fact. Um, you know, well, because um, you know, the, the Chinese authority um, didn't try to weaken the currency because they tried to get an advantage um, for their exporters. That's absolute nonsense. Um, the, um, you know, when you have wage growth kind of, uh, at the kind of pace that you have in China, then a couple of percent on the exchange rate really doesn't make any difference. What uh, the Chinese authorities did want to curtail is the great carry trade, which was really uh, messing up the whole liquidity policy inside uh, China. But, you know, while the U.S. authorities... Um, so, so just to explain, to, hmm? let's, just, let's just explain that briefly to people, uh, the carry trade being that, uh, you know, if it's a one-way bet on a currency getting stronger, people are just going to borrow money like crazy, move it into that currency, and ride it up. As soon as you show that it can go the other direction, you can stanch that. Exactly. And you have an interest rate advantage because the deposit rate in Renminbi is 3% and it's basically zero in the U.S. dollar. And just briefly before you finish your earlier comment, was there much of an outflow uh, because of that? Um, you know, is it, did that prompt um, capital flight at all? No, not – well, a little bit, but not much. Um, what it really did is it curtailed the capital inflows. Okay. That's what it did. Okay, so go back to the original thought. Yeah, the original thought was, um, and I know that uh, the U.S. loved to hammer away at the uh, RMB being uh, undervalued, but um, 
I kind of beg to differ. I don't really think that the RMB is significantly undervalued anymore. You know, it has increased, particularly in real terms. It has increased quite a bit. Don't forget that uh, inflation in China certainly has been um, higher than it is in many of the trading partners. And so even if the nominal exchange rate is stable, you get a real appreciation of the currency. Um, and um, the trade surpluses in uh, China are certainly not what they used to be. Um, and, uh, you know, the Europeans are clocking up significantly greater current account and trade surpluses than China is at the moment. So um, we actually don't expect a lot of movement from the RMB. We certainly think that this long secular upward trend, strengthening trend in the RMB, is now over. Okay, Barry, um, any final comments? Otherwise, I'll let you go. Well, no, thank you very much. I think uh, things are looking better here. I mean, uh, I, I agree exactly with what is said about uh, stimulus in the States. I mean, what more can you do? But I think that the, uh, the, the, the medicine is working slowly, and I think things are indeed getting better. Well, you could do more on the fiscal side, but they can't agree on anything. No, they won't. And there's a lot of people who say, hold it, you can't stimulate when you've got such a heavy debt as the United States does on, on the official account. So, so, so is no, that, the, not, is, uh, is, is that no, it? I guess we had a very good uh, budget report last week. So, no, there's not any fiscal stimulus coming, but there's enough of it in the pipeline, isn't there? Yeah, well, I'm just saying, is that the main block, the debt levels, um, uh, to let's say, um, be a disincentive for an infrastructure build? Because anybody who goes to airports in America versus the ones out here in Asia would say, good God, you know, um, redo your airports and redo the bridges. Well, you could talk about that, and, and, and certainly the president does, and, and most Democrats do, but uh, I don't think they've spent much time in developing countries looking at infrastructure there. I mean, the highway system is uh, brilliant here in the States. I think airports, you're absolutely right. Bridges, you're right. But, uh, you know, all of that stimulus money that goes for transport, it never goes to the airports. It's always for highways. Yeah. All right, Barry, thanks very much for joining us on Money for Nothing. Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. Klaus Bader from SockGen is still with us. Klaus, wanted to ask you briefly about the monetary authority intervening another couple of times to keep the Hong Kong dollar from strengthening too much. Why is it happening? Is it something that we should be concerned with? Mm. Well, there is again a little bit of, uh, of uh, speculation that uh, Hong Kong is going to move away from its peg to the dollar. Um, that's often kind of in the background and um, with um, the U.S. still signaling that it's going to have extremely expansionary monetary policy for a long time, the same indications coming from Europe, um, the very same indications coming from Japan. Um, you do see a lot of money going into emerging markets and going into more marginal markets. But um, frankly, I'm not absolutely sure why it's happening. Um, do, you, do you think money may have uh, rolled in from places like Indonesia, where you had a major election underway? If you, you know, if you got the wrong camp, you might be a little nervous about what might happen and some of that money might have flowed in here? It might have, but um, I don't think, you know, Hong Kong is a pretty tightly regulated financial market. Um, I think that there are other havens where people tend to bring their money, particularly if it's money which isn't um, absolutely clean. I don't think that Hong Kong is the prime destination. So is Hong Kong the prime destination for some of that capital flight you mentioned from China? 
Well, yes, it probably is, and that might well, very well play play some role. But um, I'm not uh, I'm not sure why why we've had this pressure on the Hong Kong dollar. Um, but uh, certainly, it's not uh, it's not unusual. We've had several periods like that in the past. I don't think that um, there really is an alternative at this stage yet for the dollar peg of the of the Hong Kong dollar. And so, all you're going to get is the HKMA sitting on an even bigger pile of dollar assets. Okay, so for investors listening to the program, uh, wondering when Hong Kong and China uh, may take a turn to the upside uh, in equity markets. As an economist, you're not a stock picker, but one has to keep an eye on the stock markets because it is a big barometer, as Barry said, uh, forward-looking indicator. Um, do, you see, do you see the market picking up any time in the next six months? Yeah, we've seen the market picking up... Um Already. Pretty much now already. <laughs> um, my, you know, as you as you say, I'm definitely not a stock picker. I'm definitely not a strategist, but uh, I know what our strategists are saying, and uh, our strategists have uh, recently uh, become bullish about uh, the Chinese market, um, have upgraded um, their Chinese equity market weightings, um, and with the reacceleration in economic growth um, in China, I think it's probably the right time. Um, the really big concerns about um, a downturn in China seem to be fading. You know that said. Um, there's still the elephant in the room, and uh, that is the real estate market. Um, real estate prices are softening, and um, uh, building activity is softening. Um, we get uh, numbers at the very end of the week on Friday. Uh, we'll get China property prices, and um, we, and I think pretty much everybody, expect um, that we'll see, again, an outright decline month on month in property With China prices. property, you, you have such polarized views. You have these real doom and gloomers who think it crash is coming and then you have you know people who who just think well you know it's it's positive there's nowhere else for the ordinary chinese to put their money what would be wrong with just a nice modest 15 percent correction uh, and is that the most likely outcome well a 15 percent correction would be a very large correction um we do not look well, for for something yeah i mean 10 percent is is the is the minimum for a correction so if you get 15 percent, it's not that bad yeah but um no, it's um, it's not a problem in the sense that you're likely to see um, a lot of defaults from households because you did say very very correctly that um, there isn't all that there are not all that many alternatives for uh, Chinese households to park their savings. Interest rates remain very low, and um, the range of financial instruments in which people can invest is still relatively limited. Chinese uh, financial markets are only being developed. The trouble is um, developers. You know, if you get a 15% decline in uh, real estate prices, that would um, put quite a lot of pressure on developers, and it could cause um, problems for the banks. It also could cause problems for the local authorities, whose um, revenue depends pretty heavily on uh, real estate. So this is a 15% decline is definitely not our scenario. Um, that said... Um, what is your scenario? Our scenario is that we get a, a decline in the house prices of around 5% in real estate prices. Um, and that it's going to be a somewhat more protracted period of weakness in real estate prices than we have seen previously. You know, declining house prices in just the last, I think, six years, we've had two periods where real estate prices in China were declining in year-on-year -year terms. But they were very short declines, and the year-on-year -year rates of decline were very small. They were about okay. less than half a percent. Okay, Klaus, out of time, unfortunately, 8.30, but thank you very much for joining us and uh, giving us plenty of pearls of wisdom. Klaus Botter, uh, China, or rather chief Asia-Pacific economist for Societe Generale.
Well, in the markets here as we close this half hour, and we'll be back for the second uh, half of the program in a moment. The Nikkei up 38 points in Australia, the ASX 200 up 20, and the Cosby's up 7 points in Seoul. Gold moved a little higher, $1,339 an ounce. Oil lower still, $106.71. The news coming up in just a moment here on Radio 3. Tell you about the weather, sunny periods, uh, also some showers today, isolated thunderstorms, hot with a maximum of 33, sunshine and a few showers the next couple of days. The news is next. Here's Samantha Butler. The Palestinian Health Ministry says 172 Palestinians have been killed since Israel started its latest attacks on Gaza and more than 1,200 people have been injured. No Israelis have been killed by the many rockets fired from Gaza by Hamas. Earlier, Israel resumed airstrikes on the north of Gaza after warning Palestinians in the northern parts of the territory to leave their homes. The BBC's Yolan Nell reports from Gaza. At the moment, we've got uh, naval shelling by Israeli forces off the coast uh, that's been going on. We've seen Israeli airstrikes to the north of the Gaza Strip and also a couple of Palestinian rockets fired off into Israel from the eastern areas. And we know that there have been several other rockets fired towards Israeli cities through the course of the day. That meant that Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system had to be uh, used to intercept them and bring them down safely. The French and German foreign ministers say no final agreement has yet been reached with Iran over its controversial nuclear program. Iran and six world powers have been attending talks in Vienna a week before the deadline on achieving a comprehensive deal. The German foreign minister, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, said it was not clear whether the deadline would be met. It is now up to Iran to decide whether to take the path of cooperation with the international community or if it wants to stay in isolation. I hope that the days left until July 20th will be used for further reflection in Tehran and that it will lead to the signing of the comprehensive agreement, but the ball is in Iran's court. Germany has become the first European team to win the World Cup in Latin America after beating Argentina by a single goal in extra time. Substitute Mario Goetze of Bayern Munich scored with a superb close-range volley. Here's the BBC's Steve Evans. For 113 minutes, German fans were subdued. Then Mario Goetze broke the deadlock and tens of thousands of voices here on the fan mile in Berlin erupted. The screen showed a picture of Angela Merkel in delight. On Tuesday, the World Cup winners come here to the road leading up to the Brandenburg Gate. The crowd then may be even bigger and perhaps more jubilant than the one here tonight to watch them win. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And a very good morning to you. Welcome to the second part of Money for Nothing Back Chat on its summer break. Well, let's stay with the World Cup. As you heard there, Germany exciting fans and becoming the first European team to win that World Cup in Latin America. We get more now from the BBC's Matthew Kenyon at the stadium. 
A brilliant individual goal from Mario Goethe gave Germany their fourth World Cup crown as extra time ticked away in the Maracanã and we face the prospect of penalties. Taking a fine ball from André Scherler on his chest, Goethe fired home first time past Sergio Romero to break the deadlock with minutes of extra time remaining. Argentina had no time to recover and the final whistle sparked huge celebrations from the German camp and tears of despair from their beaten opponents on the pitch and in the crowd. The 90 minutes had been breathless and error-strewn, with strikers on both sides missing good chances and few genuine saves for the keeper on either team to make. It needed a moment of great brilliance to win this World Cup, and Goethe provided it. So, a first World Cup for Germany as a unified nation. For Argentina and Lionel Messi, the wait goes on. With Brazil crushed by Germany in the semifinals, many in the soccer-mad country had turned to supporting their South American neighbors, only to be disappointed again. Adam is one such Brazilian who watched the final at the Macarena. I was supporting Argentina, and I'm really sad because then uh, Brazil lost, and now Argentina lost, and I'm really sad. But now we just like just saying the good uh, words for the Argentina passing by the street. They were a very good like um, nation. They came, they were very happy, singing, waving their flags, and now they're just going home like quiet, doing nothing. It's really sad. I I really feel sad for them. Going home quiet from the Maracana. Well, Argentina's supporters might be going home a little bit disappointed, but their team turned in a great fight. But RTHK's World Cup commentator Danny Hicks believes it was the German coach, Joaquin Liu, who made the difference. I think we've seen throughout the tournament that he's been, uh, he's been a masterful tactician. And you've got to remember, he, he, you know, he's done his, his groundwork as German. He was the assistant coach to Jurgen Klinsmann in the 2006 World Cup. Um, the bulk of this team won the European uh, Under-21 Championships in 2009. I mean, tactically, he was dealt a big blow just before the kickoff, where in the pre-match warm-up, Sammy Kadira, who's probably the best player on the pitch in the, in the semi-final route against Germany, was injured. He couldn't start, so he had to switch it around. And then the guy who replaced him got injured as well, which brought Andre Schürrle on. And yet he kept switching and changing, and uh, he got the tactics absolutely right. And, and you have to say the best team, not necessarily the, the team that had the best individual, in this mm-hmm. tournament, but the best team certainly won the tournament, and it was the right outcome. AFP's Danny Hicks covering the World Cup for RTHK. Well, if you were listening at the beginning of the program, you mentioned me, you heard me mention uh, who scored the most goals in the World Cup. Adidas or Univision? Well, we have a little bit on that now because actually both were big winners. Months before the first whistle of the World Cup, Juan Carlos Rodriguez, the president of the sports division of Univision Communications, presented his engineers with a challenge. Could they figure out a way to beam the soccer broadcasts into American homes faster than the English language competitors of Univision? Well, half a million dollars in new technology later, the challenge was met. Univision's broadcast beat ESPN and ABCs, if only by a matter of seconds. So Univision scored big, and so did Adidas. The mother of all cups. Two teams, one trophy. Give everything. Regret nothing. Find something to die for. And live for it. 
Yeah, that was a little snippet there from Adidas commercial. Both teams were wearing the German sportswear giant's clothing, and they were kicking its balls as well. Adidas is an official sponsor of FIFA, soccer's world governing body, and that means that its balls are used in World Cup matches, and its logo adorns sideboards. It's the sponsor of the tournament's top scorer so far, Colombia's James Rodriguez, as well as Germany's Thomas Muller and Argentina's Lionel Messi. So, wow, a big win for Adidas. Well, we continue with our news coverage this morning, and then we'll bring in our next guest, Avtar Santu, in just a few minutes. China Central Television has been stealing the headlines over the past few days. Last week, the state broadcaster caught many by surprise by running a report accusing the Bank of China of engaging in money laundering by helping wealthy customers move billions in dirty money abroad. Then on Friday, one of CCTV's lead anchors, Roy Chung-Gang, was reportedly taken away along with a deputy director. Uh, and a producer for questioning in a corruption investigation. Mike Weeks asked China expert Professor Willie Lam from Chinese University if Mr. Roy's uh, arrest came as a surprise. In fact, the um, anti-corruption agencies in Beijing have been targeting CCTV uh, for the past one, two years. Uh, The reason is that um, CCTV, of course, has the monopoly of national news. Uh, It it runs various very popular interview programs. So uh, the allegations against Mr. Ray is that um, he has accepted bribes from prominent personages to appear on his show, which um, is equivalent to uh, paying for publicity. So I think um, it is not too surprising that uh, Mr. Ray um, might have been targeted. Uh, At the same time, of course, um, there are allegations that uh, one of the um, senior officials with whom Mr. Ray was close uh, was also involved in the uh, Zhou Yongkang case, the the biggest anti-craft operation involving a member of the former uh, standing company member. So uh, what's happening is that uh, in CCTV as well as other major uh, Chinese uh, state-run corporations and so forth, uh, the anti-craft operation is in full swing. So there's no connection between Mr. Roy's arrest and CCTV's report on the Bank of China that it ran last week? Uh, No, definitely no, no. um, uh, No connection. Uh, However, um, it is true that CCTV has been used by the police and also um, anti-corruption agencies uh, to... um, um, to uh, actually expose uh, crimes uh, even before uh, these allegations uh, were um, exposed uh, by the police and so forth. Uh, So this is a a new twist in China's anti-corruption operation. That means uh, suspects uh, very often um, are asked to um, uh, parade uh, their confessions uh, in the police station and those footages um, were shown first uh, on, on CTV before uh, they actually were reported by the newspapers and then other news media. That's Willie Lam from Chinese University on Hong Kong Today earlier this morning. <laughs> Good 
morning to you. You're listening to Radio 3 and Money for Nothing. The time is 18 minutes before 9 o'clock. Let's take a look at gold. Gold is now trading at $1,339.30, up a buck ninety. Gold did manage to climb to a one-week high after several Fed policy members expressed concern that investors might be a little bit complacent. We're joined now by Avtar Sandhu, Commodities Manager at Philip Futures. Uh, good morning, Avtar. And thank you for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Just taking a look at gold uh, now at the moment, uh, we had one big jump about three weeks ago, and it kind of sort of platooned, or rather, I mean, uh, plateaued around 1320, and then another bounce last week. What are your projections for gold, say, out over the next six months? Okay, we thought we had uh, Avtar with us on the line, but uh, perhaps uh, we lost that line. Avtar Sandy would try to get him back, and we'll continue with our news coverage here on Money for Nothing. The financial secretary, John Jong, has called lawmakers to be courageous and take on the political responsibility of passing controversial funding applications when the Finance Committee resumes meeting in October. As Priscilla Ung reports, lawmakers have yet to decide whether to back a proposal to expand three existing landfills and build a new incinerator. The Finance Committee wrapped up its meeting before the summer recess on Saturday night and managed to pass only 21 out of 44 funding applications put forward by the government. However, the most controversial one, which calls for $18 billion to expand three existing landfills and build an incinerator off Shekuchau, has yet to be passed. Lawmakers will have to deal with the much-opposed proposal when Lechko resumes meeting in October. In his blog, Mr. Zhang urged lawmakers to be courageous in dealing with these controversial funding applications. He said it is their political responsibility to make decisions that are in the best interest of Hong Kong. As the full council continues to scrutinize a bill to double the stamp duty on property transactions, Mr. Zhang called on councillors not to support any proposed amendments that may reduce the bill's effect on curbing property prices. Meanwhile, the financial chief expressed concerns over the current political divide in Hong Kong. He said he understands that youngsters feel very strongly about what is right and what is wrong, but urged them to take a step back and look at the society from a different perspective. The government will make public an initial report on political reform on Tuesday, and student groups have warned that they may resort to civil disobedience if the authorities reject proposals that allow civil nomination. RTHK's Priscilla Ung reporting. People Power lawmaker Albert Chan has accused the government of being responsible for the current tensions between the executive and the legislative branches. He said there was virtually no communication between the two sides when it comes to policy formulation. And he warned the government that if it didn't change what he called its autistic attitude, then there would be a complete breakdown in communication. What exactly did he mean by that? Our Ian Pooler put it to Mr. Chan to explain. For many, that we have a very serious and heaven problem in Hong Kong uh, public administration. First of all, we have a autocratic uh, system, and the, the government uh, overall attitude or the behavior is autistic. You know, when you look at the way that the, the high official function, they rarely meet the public. Uh, they hide behind the ivory tower and in the, and, and in their comfortable. The, air-conditioned room, you know, to uh, send a message to the, their block. And they rarely meet uh, the councillor to discuss public policy and uh, really consult them before the government formulated the policy. 
You know, so I do believe that they should change this autistic type of uh, attitude. You know, otherwise, you know, without any proper communication, uh, no no public policy, you know, can be accepted by the public, you know, without serious consultation. So when you look at the past few months, uh, many of the policies, the government put those through the let go, you know, because they have sufficient votes. Uh, but public have been uh, strongly opposed uh, many of their policies, even though those were adopted, you know, by the, the Legislative Council. Do you think it's appropriate, actually, to use the term autistic in this context? <laughs> well, you know, I was a trained social worker. You know, I still remember back in the 80s when I worked with some clients and some children of autistic uh, illness. And, uh, you know, uh, it's very difficult to communicate, you know. So uh, when the press asked me yesterday, you know, what is the serious problem? The first thing coming come to my mind is, you know, some of those uh, children with uh, uh, autistic uh, behavior, you know, they will, you know, they will, they, they live uh, talk to people uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, have eye-to-eye contact and they just rock back and forth all the time, you know, just like the government writing their blog. You know, so the, you know, this is a very serious, serious illness. So it's about time for them to address and uh, confront this type of problem. Because. People Power lawmaker Albert Chan. The time is now 13 minutes before 9 o'clock. A couple of other things to look out for today. Honey Capital is buying UK's Pizza Express for $1.54 billion. The China FDI numbers will be coming out today. Also, China June New Yuan loans and money supply and aggregate financing. And Morgan Stanley has come out with a report saying that commodities could be rising on the strength of China. And so we'd like to... Uh, talk a little bit about commodities this morning. Say good morning to Avtar Sandu, Commodities Manager at Philips Securities. Good morning, Avtar. Good morning. Yeah, what is your um, forecast for gold now out of the next six months? Well, what we are looking at gold, uh, we, we, we now have the bulls in charge of the market. Uh, they started with the conflict in Ukraine, then Iraq, and now what we have to is the Israeli incursion into Gaza. All this is encouraging safe haven demand. And on top of that, we had a strong fiscal buying from retail investors. Uh, there also had been some good flows into ETFs. Uh, the central banks are also uh, heard to be buying gold also. So my forecast uh, for the next or rather this half of the year, is gold to range from uh, on the high side to 1380, and on the low side we, we have 1290, but we expect gold to move to inched up higher in the lack of uh, any other bearish factors. Of course, the bearish factor we have been looking at the low interest rate environment, and as confidence in the economic growth, uh, uh, the bulls may just taper the, their views. To... It's kind of hard to see gold rallying a lot uh, when you see people uh, plowing into government bonds, uh, happy to get a couple of percent. Uh, with people, you know, so desperate for yield, they'll take two percent, two and a half percent over ten years. Why buy gold when you get no yield at all? Uh, the thing is this, all right, uh, what we are looking at is a stock market, especially in the West, that is very topished. All right, and money has to flow out of, is 
flowing to treasuries. Uh, some of it is flowing into gold also. Uh, primarily, people are just spreading their bets. Yeah. It, it is also a little bit awkward to see oil falling now while gold is still firm. Um, I guess oil is moving on different fundamentals. Uh, but yeah, um, what, what is your picture for, you know, we saw yeah, Brent crude from 115 to 106. Uh, uh, crude oil has, uh, is decoupled from gold now. Uh, what they're looking at is a good supply coming out from Libya. Uh, what we are looking at is actually is about 470,000 barrels a day just coming out of, of Libya currently. Uh, we did have some issues to it. I mean, there was the conflict in Iraq, and people were concerned as how the is going to affect uh, the Iraqi supplies. But uh, it's, the conflict seems to be contained now, and there was a report from Iraq saying that they've exported more oil than uh, the previous uh Yes. So, uh, and also, uh, we do have uh, some news from the, especially the rebels from the eastern side, uh, saying that they are committed to a agreement to reopen their the largest oil port, El Cidar. And all this is, is just pushing the price lower. And what about the U.S. production? Uh, it's moving up fast to becoming one of the largest producers, if not the largest producer yeah, of oil. Over the long run, well, what we have is, uh, especially the shale oil that is coming out from the U.S., and uh, there's a lot of talk about the U.S. being the uh, net exporter of oil, if it's if politically possible. And all this uh, has put a damper on on. Could all, of course, we have geopolitical issues right, uh, that, that may hold up the uh, the base uh, somewhere around ninety five dollars a barrel for the WTI. So, so is uh, it good to be short oil now because you'll get a spike every time there's a geopolitical incident? Incident, but then afterwards it will continue on a downward path. Yeah, actually, uh, most people are looking at uh, any rally to to short oil. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about copper, too, because it seems that copper has been holding on to some strength, uh, uh, even though, you know, the outlook in China is not great. But does that mean that the outlook is actually getting better and that copper is kind of a forward looking indicator? Yeah, copper is. We have been always looking at copper as a forward looking indicator. But what we are seeing in copper is a slightly shrinking inventories over the years. Uh, we, of course, the Chinese, uh, it's still it's around seven, five, seven to 7.5% growth a year. So that, that's the demand side of it. But on the supply side, what we, we had have access to. Uh, supply over demand over the past few months, but the inventories are actually shrinking uh, lower and lower, and the deficit is, is, is also getting lower. So that is holding up the price of copper, and every time the price tips, we, we see buying coming in. So the New York Times a week ago today, I think, ran a story saying that, you know, everything's in a bubble. And he was kind of playing off the fact that uh, central banks have had, you know, interest rates down around zero for such a long time that, you know, there's a lot of cash around. It's found its way into into things like bonds are kind of at all time high. Stocks are at all time highs in the West. Uh, real estate is very high in a lot of places around the world. Um, the one thing that isn't really high is commodities, and I think a lot of people listening don't want commodities to go up because they fear that that will lead to inflation. 
inflation. But is that the key then? When we see commodities really going up, that's when we have to start looking out for a crash. Yeah, I guess uh, if you're looking for some alpha and you're looking for something that is undervalued, uh, commodities is one of the rare asset classes that, that are basically undervalued uh, at to, if at historical prices, so if if you want to put your money down for and wait for inflation to come in, maybe later on in the 2015, uh, commodities is is it. Yeah, but maybe if commodities start to pick up, it'll be a really good sign that uh, economies are getting genuinely healthy. And, uh, you know, we would be able to uh, to withstand uh, the notion that interest rates might spoil the party. Uh, that is correct. But if you look at commodities, but uh, rather than macro factors, it's the fundamentals of each commodity that is actually driving it up. Uh, even you look at the smaller commodities like cocoa, uh, we do have a supply-demand deficit, uh, and the deficit is, is, is uh, expected to stay for even even until the next two or three years because of the structural changes yeah. in, in, in Western Africa. It's a, it's a great point. And also, if you look at coffee, we, we had weather issues that had driven prices up, and... Uh, uh, and Yields have been affected. Uh, prices have tapered off, but uh, people are still concerned about the fundamentals. Uh. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Uh, there is actually quite a lot of divergence. You see beef prices in the U.S. at almost all-time highs, and you see corn at multi-year lows. Yeah, uh, all this is to do with the fundamentals of each particular commodity. For corn itself, we, we, we had... Uh, series of reports coming out from from the the USDA and other bodies that keep track of it that corn we we have large inventories uh, and there's a huge harvest that is coming on and uh, weather is actually affecting uh, immediately going to bring on a good yield. Okay, so Avtar, we're about ready to go. Just a final question. Uh, what do you like the most at the moment? If investors were looking for a little diversity in their uh, portfolio, what should they take a look at? Oh, actually, the, the ones that they should look at are the ones that have very constant supply-demand deficit. For example, if you look at cocoa itself, uh, cocoa will def- has a deficit, and the supply will definitely have an issue coming on, and demand is very, very steady. Uh, I would say you can look at cocoa. Okay. Avtar, thank you very much. Uh, All right. Took a little trouble getting you on the line, but uh, an interesting discussion, and thanks much. Avtar Sandhu, Commodities Manager at Philip Futures. We'll wrap up on kind of a fun one. Is Mars too plain a name for a planet? How about Earth? Think you could come up with something a bit more dynamic? Well, now's your chance because the International Astronomical Union is giving the public the chance to name 30 planets outside our solar system. The BBC's Susanna Mendona has more. They're always searching out new planets in sci-fi movies, and they have great names, like the planet Vulcan in Star Trek, where Mr. Spock came from. Doctor Who fans.
fans might remember Gallifrey, which was home to the Time Lords. And if, like me, you've always loved a bit of Star Wars, there was Tatooine, where Luke Skywalker grew up. life, though, it isn't the movie scriptwriters who come up with names for new planets. Nope, that's been the job of the International Astronomical Union. Until now. It's decided it needs a bit of celestial inspiration, and so for the first time, members of the public will be able to help name around 30 planets. They'll come from a pre-selected group of more than 300 planets outside our solar system that were discovered before 2009. Dr Guillem Anglade Escude, who's an astronomer at Queen Mary University in London, says it's all about getting people interested in astronomy. These are places where eventually, um, one day we may be able to look and maybe look for life. Um, so I think it's fine that the people um, try to put names and figure out um, things that can inspire next generation of scientists. There is a catch though. You have to be in a registered astronomical society or club to take part in this worldwide competition. So time to sign up if you want to start boldly naming planets that none of us have been to before. And this is RTHK Radio 3 and Money for Nothing. Coming up to the close of the program, we'll leave you with a couple of interesting uh, interesting um, points in the news. The HKMA has injected $2.325 billion Hong Kong dollars and then another $1.06 billion to prevent the Hong Kong dollar from rising beyond the permitted limit. And also we hear from the Shanghai Security News in its editions this morning that the China property market won't collapse and is undergoing adjustment. That from Shanghai Security News, citing uh, Chin Hong, Director of Public Policy Research at the Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development, and also that China may loosen loans in the second half of the year. Well, let's uh, get a check now of how the markets are moving. Everything's higher in Asia this morning. What we're seeing is um, the Nikkei up about 38 points, and that is a gain of a quarter of a percent, gains of about a third of a percent in the other markets. Weather today, sunshine expected, some showers and squally thunderstorms, 33 as the maximum. This is Money for Nothing.